My name's Andy McAfee. I am one of the two people that wrote this book called The Second Machine Age, uh, along with my co-author Eric Brynjolfsson, who's also back at MIT. And what I'd like to do this morning is not try to summarize the entire book, but lay out one line of argument that we make in the book, um, explain where it comes from, show some evidence that's not in the book, because the, the data, the evidence keep unfolding about this situation, and I want to show you what I think is the latest and greatest out there. And then let's have some time, leave plenty of time at the end, just to talk about whatever we want to talk about. Does that sound good? The, the argument that I want to make is about um, an era of ridiculous technological progress and its economic implications, the implications for our, uh, our companies, our economies, our society, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I think, bring us down this morning. I'm going to concentrate on some of the challenging implications about this technological progress. I want to say up front, and I'll try to say repeatedly, this is good news. Technological progress is really, really good news. We should be optimistic about this period, this world that we're creating. But we should be mindfully optimistic. And I want to concentrate this morning more on the mindful part. But I want to make the case first that we really are living in an era of just astonishing technological progress. And to do that, I want to show where we thought we were just 10 years ago on a really important topic, on the topic of what we human beings were going to be doing in our companies and our economies versus what we we're going to hand over to the digital labor. It's a, it's a really fundamental question. It's important to get this right. And here's the state of our understanding, the state of the art, a decade ago in 2004. These were two colleagues of ours back in Boston who wrote a fantastic book called The New Division of Labor about this topic, what does the human stuff do versus what does the digital stuff do. And this was a wonderful piece of work. It summarized the best thinking, the latest research, and it laid out a really crisp case for this new division of labor, not just in 2004, not just in one point in time, but for some fairly long runway going forward, what was that division of labor going to look like? And they said some, some very commonsensical things. For example, nobody gets paid any wage anywhere in the world to sit around and add up long columns of numbers. That has gone over to digital. Now, you, you couldn't get a job doing that anywhere these days. And in general, the more routine, the more codifiable, the more standardizable a task is, fine, give it to the digital stuff. What does that leave for us humans to be doing? And I want to stress, not just in 2004, but for some big period of time, what are we going to be doing in our economies? And they made a really beautiful argument that we have a comparative advantage in two really fundamental areas, in, in two broad tasks that we do a lot of in an economy. We humans are inherent pattern matchers. We take in stuff via our senses. We match it against what evolution has programmed into us and what we've seen before. We do it consciously and subconsciously. We just pattern match all the time. We're really good at it. Our efforts up to 2004 to teach computers to pattern match had been fairly miserable failures overall, along with our efforts to do things, to teach computers to do the kinds of communication that we are all so good at. We're a deeply social creature, but we had not been very successful at all at teaching computers to listen, read, write, respond, any of these kinds of complex communication, they were just really bad at. And that seemed likely conti to continue for a while. <coughs> when these authors looked at pattern matching, exhibit A of a task that they gave that most of us can do well, certainly well enough, that computers were just horribly, horribly bad at. Exhibit A in this book was driving a car in traffic. 
Do we see where this is going? Uh, the reason Eric and I are grinning like idiots in this picture is we just survived a trip down Highway 101 in Northern California in that car, which had no driver. So that's one of Google's fleet of autonomous vehicles. And in 2010, this is six years after that book came out, in 2010, Google announced via a blog post, this is how things are done today, they announced via a blog post that they had been driving completely autonomous cars on American roads, in traffic, hadn't been killing anybody. And Eric and I read that and we kind of said, huh? And we cashed in all of our favors at Google and we said, please, can we have a ride in this car? And we pestered them so much, they said, okay, fine, come on, we'll give you a ride in the car. So we hopped in that thing and um, honestly, just like you would imagine, there's a big red button in the middle of the dashboard. And there was a Google engineer driving the car, and at one point in time, we we're on the highway, we we're going at highway speeds, and at one point in time, he went bump on that big red button, took his hands off the car, and the car started driving itself down the highway. And at that moment, I learned, you know how there are, what is it, there are five stages of grief and 12-step recovery um, programs? I learned that there are three phases of autonomous driving. Phase number one is raw, abject terror because you're suddenly hurtling down the highway at real speeds and this part of the science experiment that could go very, very, very badly, very quickly. Um, phase number one lasted for about 20 seconds during which I tried hard not to scream. Um, and then phase two kicked in, which was passionate interest in what was going on. Because we were, I felt like an astronaut, very, <coughs> excuse me, very few people had done this before. So we started peppering the Google engineers with questions about sensors and algorithms and mapping and what kind of gear do you have, just peppering these guys with questions. Phase number two lasted for about 15 minutes, and then phase number three kicked in, which I can only call mild boredom. Um, because it turns out this car drives exactly the way that we are all taught to in driver's ed, and then forget about immediately once we get our license. Um, it didn't even speed, it, doesn't, it didn't weave lanes, we're the only morons obeying all the traffic laws going down Highway 101. <coughs> By the end of our trip, um, it honestly felt about as thrilling as the monorail ride that takes you from your gate to the terminal at an airport. So when we were done, when we, when we, were done, we got out of the car, we took our, our silly tourist pictures, and Eric and I looked at each other, and we said basically two things. We said, first of all, why are people still driving cars? This, this, is just, this doesn't seem like it's going to last very much longer. This, the, the autonomous cars of today cannot do everything that we humans can do. We are still more flexible. We can respond to weird situations. But they're really good. I'm here to tell you. They're getting better very, very quickly. And the second thing Eric and I said was um, something has changed fairly fundamentally out there. Our old understandings, our old frameworks don't seem to be working very well anymore. And this progress that we're seeing, this digital progress, has really caught us flat-footed. And the more we looked around, the more we kept on going, huh, like, what, we, what, we can do what now? For example, in this area of complex communication where we allegedly hold the advantage, this is a screen grab I took a while back from the Forbes website. This is an er a summary of a Nike earnings announcement. It was written entirely by an algorithm. No people involved here. You notice the byline there is narrative science. It's the name of the company, not a human being. And we talked to the guys at narrative science, and they said, if you give us a body of data, it doesn't matter what the data is. It could be the earnings of a company, the performance of all of your divisions, um, if you're a franchisor, the box score of a baseball game. We don't care. 
Give us a body of data and we will write a clean English prose narrative about that data. It will be grammatically perfect. It will have a voice. The story will have an arc. And we'll write 162 stories, one for each game of the baseball season, and you will not be able to tell that they were all written by the same entity. They won't, they won't appear like they came out of some kind of cookie cutter. And when we look around at examples in everything from translation to speech recognition to voice synthesis and every other aspect of communication, again, in most areas, we humans still hold the absolute high ground, but the, the, the machines are coming on very, very quickly. To try to make that point concrete, I want to give my favorite example of combining these two allegedly uniquely human capabilities, pattern matching and complex communication. We had a very clear example of a head-to-head -head between human smarts and digital smarts three years ago. Are any of us big enough geeks that we sat around and watched Watson play Jeopardy against, yeah, some of us are. Um, I didn't leave my house for three days because this was such a big deal. In February of 2011, uh, Watson, which was an IBM supercomputer, custom built to play the game of Jeopardy, took on two of the best human Jeopardy players of all time. Took on Ken Jennings, who won the game 73 times in a row, became kind of an American folk hero, and took on Brad Rutter, the only guy to ever beat Ken Jennings, beat him twice. These were the two best knowledge workers in their weird little industry of, of playing Jeopardy. Um, but, if, um, but if you know anything about playing Jeopardy, it's actually a great test of both pattern matching and complex communication because they can ask you questions about almost anything. They don't tell you in advance what they're going to ask about. You have to have a huge body of data in your head. You have to be able to match that against the question very, very quickly and accurately. And they sometimes ask questions in a way that's designed to make you go, what, what do you people want from me? So it, it combines these two human abilities in a fairly deep way. Don't take my word for it, though. Let's play a little bit of Jeopardy this morning. Uh, we're not going to play one round. We'll just play one question worth. And I didn't have buzzers to hand out to everybody. So we're going to do it a little bit differently. We'll try to be faithful to the show. Uh, so I'm going to flash up the question. I'm going to read it. When I'm done, not before. This is where it's faithful to the show. When I'm done reading, if you know the answer, Shout it out. Ready? <laughs> William Wilkinson's An Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia inspired this author's most famous novel, Go. Once in a while, when I ask this question, there are enough 19th century literature nerds in the audience to know that the question is asking about the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. That's hard enough. Which one do they want? Do they want the name of the author or the name of the, of the book? Right. But how long did it take you to figure that out? So to play Jeopardy well, you've got to summon this massive trivia, and you've got to figure out what the heck they want from you. It's actually a very, very advanced test of pattern matching and complex communication. How did humanity go? Watson's the guy in the middle. And honestly, um, it wasn't even close. Over the course of three days of, of televised matches in February 2011, Watson just steamrolled humanity in this area, wound up with three times as much money as either of the two human competitors. And when I sat down to watch, I was really rooting for Watson, because I, I kind of identify myself as a geek. I wanted a demonstration of technological capability. 
by the end, I was rooting for my poor beleaguered fellow humans because it just, it had this kind of remorseless feel to it where Watson was just got quicker, no emotion, completely cold-blooded, merciless. It was just like, you know, can, please give us a break by the end here. Um, it was a really amazing demonstration and IBM produced some data that is my favorite depiction of what's going on here. It's a depiction of this weird acceleration in technological progress that we're seeing and this very quick and very deep encroachment into human territory, into stuff that we used to think was uniquely human. So let me show you this, this data. This is a graph uh, from IBM about how to play the game of Jeopardy well. And each of these dots is a human Jeopardy champion. And you notice that those dots are all clustered way up to the top? That's because the vertical axis of this graph is accuracy. You cannot win on Jeopardy and get a lot of questions wrong. You just, you can't do it. The penalties are too severe. So those are human Jeopardy champions. That's Ken Jennings. And you see that even by the standards of other human Jeopardy champions, he was kind of in a league of his own. He's further off to the right. And the, act, the horizontal axis here is aggression. How many times did you win the right to answer the question? So Ken is super accurate, very, very aggressive, and that's why he was able to win 73 times in a row. So this is where humanity is. <clears throat> this is where Watson was in December of 2006 when IBM started working on the project. And you notice immediately, Watson sucks, right? Watson <laughs> is just, any of us could have beaten Watson in December of 2006. The reason Watson is a line instead of a point is that you could tune Watson to be either more accurate or more aggressive. So you've got a frontier that he can perform along. But you notice it's a deeply unimpressive frontier at the end of 2006. But then where things get wild to me is when you start to watch Watson's progress over time. This is what happened month by month, year by year. As the team got smarter, as they learned how to program, as they got more data, as they, as they added more computing capacity, you see this really quick, really deep encroachment into human territory to the point that by the time we've got our last line drawn here in November of 2010, that's less than four years later. In November of 2010, Watson is squarely in human Jeopardy, Jeopardy champion territory. Can't beat Ken Jennings on a good day yet, it doesn't look like. The question was by the time they taped the shows in January of 2011, what was the case going to be? We know the answer, not even close for humanity. And Ken Jennings, in addition to knowing a lot of trivia, had a sense of humor about the whole thing. When he gave his final, final Jeopardy answer, and he got it right, he, he knew it was Bram Stoker, he, got, he said Stoker, but he also added a little postscript that I think is, is my favorite kind of jokey slogan for the second machine age that we're heading into. He said, I for one welcome our new computer overlords. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he wrote later, he said, look, um, I don't think I am the first knowledge worker to see their skills outpaced by the kinds of technology that we're seeing. He said, I'm, there could be a lot more of this coming. And the point I want to make, that what I want to try to emphasize is, I agree with Ken. I think there is a lot of change coming to our economies, in particular to our workforces and to our employment situation. And so what I want to do for the rest of the time is, is show a bunch of evidence and lay out an argument about what might be happening, what's already been happening, 
to our workforces and to our employment situation, and where might this go in the future? So let me start by, by showing some historical evidence by what's been going on. Because as I, have, as I said, there's been a lot of good research just in the past couple years, and it feels to me like this research is, con is converging and painting a picture about what's going on. So let me try to outline that picture for you. And again, the fundamental thing to keep in mind we should like technological progress. I, uh, this is not a Luddite presentation, I hope, at all. We should love tech progress. The old joke is that technological progress is the only free lunch economists believe in. It just it grows our overall pie. It makes us more affluent. That's great. Our more naive understanding was that technological progress is a rising tide that lifts all boats equally, that kind of makes everybody better off in every sense of the word. And what we're learning is that's a little bit too naive. And when we look at people, not as consumers, but as people who want to offer their labor to the economy, it seems increasingly clear that, it, that tech is not a rising tide that floats all boats, that the progress we're seeing is biased in a couple different ways. So I want to talk about the implications of this technological progress and introduce this idea of biased technological change. The first kind of bias that we're seeing pretty clearly in the data is the most well understood by economists. It's called skill-biased technological change. The first person to win a Nobel Prize in economics had a great way to summarize this. He says, inequality is a race between technology and education. Education tends to reduce inequality. Tech progress tends to increase it. We see that super clearly from this data. I, I wish I had drawn this chart. This is one that David Otter, who's I, a colleague of mine at MIT, I think he's the foremost labor economist working these days, and he draws pictures like this, looking at what's been happening to wages of people at different levels of education over a pretty long period of time. And what you notice is that for you know 30 plus years, the only people in America who have been seeing their real wages rise are those with at least a college education. That's great news for college educated and above, but we need to keep in mind fewer than 40% of American workers are in those categories of college education or above. The median American worker has some college but does, did not finish, and a lot of us, a lot of workers in the country are still down there in that high school graduate or high school dropout level. Uh, they have not been doing well, and the data are showing they're kind of slipping farther behind over time. This, I can't tell a happy story about this kind of bias technological change. The second flavor of bias that we, we have some data on is capital bias technological change. The, um, I am not a Marxist by any stretch of the imagination. I'm kind of an ardent capitalist. I, I believe about capitalism what Churchill believed about democracy, which is that it's the worst possible system apart from all the other ones we've tried. So I, this is not like, let's not put on our Che t-shirts and storm the barricades. That's not the message here. But what I do want to show is that the returns to capital versus labor have been shifting a lot and fairly recently. So the returns to capital, duh, corporate profits, the returns to labor, one way to measure that is the percentage of total GDP that gets paid out in wages in an economy. And we noticed that those two lines were in a dance for most of the post-war period, just kind of trading off going back and forth. And then since the turn of the century, they have diverged very, very sharply. Returns to capital have never been higher. Corporate profits in the US are at an all-time high. The returns to labor, the red line there, are heading south 
very, very quickly. Amazingly enough, that red line includes the wages paid to some categories of superstar earner, professional athletes, very highly paid executives, hedge fund managers, folk like that. If we could take them out, it's very hard to take them out of the data. If we could take them out of the data, that red line would be dropping off even more quickly than it is now. So the returns to capital versus labor seem to be shifting a lot. And then the, the third kind of, and I, I should underscore, um, some pretty good research. These guys published a paper just last year where they say this phenomenon, the, the decreasing returns to labor, this is a global phenomenon and it's showing up both in rich countries and in less developed ones. So this is some really nice confirmation that what, what, what's going on is part of this technological progress story. The returns to labor are going down in countries as diverse as America, China, Mexico, and India. So this appears to be a pretty global phenomenon. The last kind of bias I want to talk about goes back to those hedge fund managers and highly paid executives. It's pretty clear we're seeing what we might want to call superstar bias technological change. The, the, uh, the levels of wealth and income going to the absolute top of the range have been increasing pretty sharply lately. This is the point that Piketty makes in the book that, that people have been talking about lately. And he has gathered data that make this phenomenon pretty clear. This is a graph not of the 1%. This is a graph of the 1% of the 1%. And you see that their income has been going up back to levels that we really haven't seen since uh, before World War II. Again, this phenomena appears to be not confined just to America. Piketty makes a really good case that this is going on around the world. And when we look at a lot of different data, it does appear that inequality is on the rise in most of the countries around the world. One exception is Greece. I don't think they're the template for where we want to go. <laughs> so we've got these different kinds of bias. We've got, we appear to be seeing skill bias tech change, capital bias tech change, and superstar bias tech change. I, should, I wanna be clear, tech progress is not the only um, tectonic force that's reshaping economies around the world. Absolutely not. We have globalization. We have tax and policy changes. Uh, we talk, uh, people talk about changes in philosophy that make it okay to be more kind of nakedly greedy about yourself. All, some of, all of these things are going on to different degrees. And I don't want to make the case that tech progress is the only tectonic force going on. It's absolutely not true. I do want to make the case that it is an underappreciated one. I don't think we've been spending enough of our time and energy on it. And it, I believe it is only going to become a bigger deal going forward. Because all the geeks that I go talk to, when I go out to Silicon Valley and try to understand what's going on, all the geeks that I talk to basically say, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, we're honestly just getting warmed up with the kinds of things that we can do. That driverless car is cute give us another few years and we're, we're really gonna blow you away. And I, I, I believe that now. I, I think the last picture that I wanna draw, nope, let me try to, let me try to tell a story about where, where we might be headed. And it's a story that my slogan for this progression is from the bowl to the tuna can. And I probably need to explain that. So let me talk about the bowl first. Uh, the bowl is my favorite picture of what's been happening to the U.S. labor force. Again, over the past, I believe, 25-ish years. And once again, it comes from my colleague, Dave Otter, back at MIT. He wrote this, published this paper last year where he just did this beautiful work to look at the changes in the U.S. workforce. Every region of the country, every job in America over a period of two or three decades. This was really 
fantastic, very systematic work. And what's beautiful is he was able to summarize it in one picture. Have you ever heard songwriters say, gosh, I wish I had written that one? Um, um, business geeks say, gosh, I, had drawn, I wish I had drawn that graph. You know, it's, just, it's a lovely sum, uh, summary. Here is his graph. It's the graph that I'm calling the bowl here. And the way to think about it is, have the market share of jobs been rising or falling? The higher these points are on the graph, that means more jobs have been shifting in that direction. Down at the bottom, that's where the jobs have been disappearing. And these jobs are arranged from lowest skill to highest skill in, in the economy. And what you see is from 1980 on, the, the broad pattern that we saw in America was the hollowing out of the middle. And we've all probably heard this phrase by now, the hollowing out, the polarization, the disappearance of the middle class. You see that very clearly in pictures like this. We've seen pretty strong job growth down at the absolute lowest levels. They're called, uh, the label Otter gives to them is low-skilled service jobs. These are home health aid, night watchmen, um, dog groomer, jobs like that. These are not, they don't require a lot of education. They don't, they're not very well paid, but they're not disappearing. They're actually growing. It's the classic jobs in the middle that have been seeing a lot of downward pressure, both in terms of job creation and in the wages that are getting paid out. So why is that? Um, Otter and his colleagues were able to take a, take a good hard look at this question, and they offer a very clear explanation of what's going on. They say, look, the, the, pat, the, the, the culprit, the cause here, is actually very simple. It's the fact that, that computers have been substituting for the kinds of routine knowledge work that the classic middle-class American worker used to do. Jobs that require clerical work, repetitive monitoring, bookkeeping, those were the bedrock of the large, stable, prosperous American middle class. Those jobs are, have been squarely in the sights of the kinds of technology we already have, and it's leading to that kind of hollowing out. They looked at other factors here. They looked at globalization. They looked at immigration. They looked at the offshoring of manufacturing. They said some of these things have some kind of um, correlation here. None of these things is, is in the middle of our findings. These guys are not scholars of technology, so it's really amazing to me that their explanation is squarely a technological explanation. So that's the bowl. Does, does that make sense? So what I want to talk about is, is if the computers are breaking out of their box of being able to do only routine stuff and really broadening out their, their portfolio of abilities, what does this mean for the workforce? So I want to outline a progression uh, uh, that if we were to draw the bowl picture in another couple decades, what might it look like? And to do that, I want to go on a, just a whirlwind tour of recent examples of technological progress. And I want to <clears throat> conduct that whirlwind tour starting down at the bottom of the skill ladder and moving steadily up all the way through the skill ladder. And by skills here, I mean something really specific. I mean stuff that historically, um, we, all, any of us can do. In other words, any, we're all good substitutes for each other. I'll call that a low skill job. And then I want to move up to the kinds of jobs where we think you need a huge amount of individualized skill or education. I'll call those high skill jobs. So down at the low end, there has been this large set of things that we are all pretty good at and interchangeable at that the technologies have been lousy at, and they're not lousy at that anymore. So all of us are really, really good at picking numbers off of 
buildings as we drive past and figuring out what the street number of the building is. It turns out this image recognition task is a bizarrely hard thing to teach computers to do. It's been really, really hard. Image recognition is an entire subdiscipline in computer science and artificial intelligence. And frankly, they weren't making a lot of progress until pretty recently. But a while back, a team at Google France realized, you know Google drives those cars up and down basically every street taking pictures of everything. So the team at Google France said, we've got this unbelievably comprehensive set of images, street level images for basically all of France. Somewhere in that huge body of images, there are street numbers all over the, you know, millions of them all over the place. We could either employ an army of people to sit around and look through all these images and try to find the street numbers. That hideously expensive, not going to work, or we can try some new things to try to teach computers to do that automatically. So they made use of a new portfolio of algorithms called machine learning or deep learning. They trained the computer on an initial set, then they turned it loose. An hour later, they had every street number in France embedded in their database. So we're, we're moving from really uninspiring progress in things like image recognition to holy cow progress in these same fields. We're seeing this over and over again. Uh, again, speech recognition is the kind of thing that we are all fairly good at, the technologies have been lousy at. Our phones still make a lot of mistakes. It's amazing how many fewer mistakes they're making now than they were even a couple years ago. Uh, blowing me away even more, well, I'll get to the, I'll get to the translation example in a second. Uh, the phrase burger flipper, is kind of shorthand for a lousy job that's always available. I'm not so sure anymore. This is a demo project where these guys built a contraption that will turn out 300 completely customized burgers an hour. You put tomatoes and heads of lettuce and ground chuck in one end, you tell it what you want, and burgers come out the other end of this conveyor belt. So I'm not sure that burger flipper is going to remain this safe job for too much longer. If we go up and we look at kind of jobs in the mid-skill range, a lot of people have been making a living doing one kind of writing or another. As we saw earlier with narrative science, technology is pretty good at writing clean English prose. It's actually getting better at surveying a big body of documents and synthesizing what's in them to write a summary report or a research report about what's in that great big body of documents. I read a little while back, there is one venture capital firm that has given a board seat and a vote to an algorithm now. And the job of the algorithm is to read all the relevant research, the clinical trials, the whatnot, this is in healthcare, to read all that data and to try to summarize it in a systematic way, it gets a vote inside the company now. I don't know yet if that's a great idea or a terrible one, but people are absolutely trying it. Uh, not only are computers getting decent at writing, they're getting decent at evaluating the writing of others. This is an effort to try to automate the work of grading student essays. Student essays are a great way to gauge learning. We don't use them because we faculty are lazy and we don't want to grade them. So turn it over to an algorithm. It's pretty good, it's getting better very quickly. And then the last one, um, uh, I'm sorry, one more. Watson was not built just to play the game of Jeopardy. They did not unplug Watson after it won on Jeopardy. They're deploying it in lots of different domains. One of them is obviously customer service. What, you know, what, what's going on? What's your problem? Can I understand what you want? And can I find an answer for you? I don't know about you all. My human interactions in this area 
very often leave me wanting. Uh, so I, well, the sooner Do Watson answers the phone, the happier I will be. The, um, our, we talked about autonomous vehicles. Up, up at the high end of skills, whoops, can we go back one slide, please? This is, one of, this is an example that just blows me away. Translating in real time is an unbelievably difficult thing for even a very well-trained human being to do. I've given some talks in front of international audiences, and in the back there's this little kind of soundproof booth with two people in it doing simultaneous translation. The reason there are two is that the job is so mentally taxing that they have to kind of tap out every 10 minutes or so and let the other person do it. The, the mental load is really, really high. This is a demonstration project that Microsoft did a little while back where they had one of their executives give a talk. This guy was American, did not speak Chinese. Gave a talk in front of a Chinese audience. In real time, a, chi a digital Chinese version of his voice gave the same talk in his voice, using, his, using a synthesized version of his voice. That's kind of a cool demonstration project. And uh, Craig Mundy, who's a very senior um, scientist at Microsoft, is here with us. Microsoft just announced that in the, is it the next version of Skype, Craig? The next version of Skype, for all of us for free, is going to have automatic translation, simultaneous, real time, built into it. What? <laughs> now, it's not going to work perfectly at first, but wait a little while. Uh, because it takes tech progress a while to build the momentum, and then it just turns into you've got this Watson-style steamroller that goes through things. So even if Skype trans, um, auto-translation is not fantastically good initially, give it a little bit of time. We're going we're to be blown away. I've been assured by people who are really good at this that in a few more years, any of us are going to wander into a country where we don't speak the language and have perfectly um, uh, valid and informative exchanges with the natives of that country, basically by speaking into a device and having the device translate for us. This, this, is, this is science fiction stuff. It's coming very, very quickly. A couple last examples at, at the high skill. A pathologist is one of the most highly trained medical specialists today. They hone their brain's pattern matching abilities over the course of years by looking at images of, of, of potential disease or pathology and then trying to match that against how did this patient actually do. It's this deep pattern matching exercise. There have been a couple different demonstration projects. I'm pretty sure that it, the next time, uh, if and when I become ill, I want Dr. Watson. I want a digital pathologist. They are outperforming the best human pathologists in the recent tests that we have. What's even more amazing to me, in some cases, they're saying, hey, there's this part of the image that is really correlated with the outcomes that we care about. Did this patient survive or not? Right now, no human pathologist is trained to look at those aspects of an image. So the technology in some ways is going to help us push the science ahead by pointing to things that we should be looking at but we're not right now. And then um, the last example I want to give, um, this is a pretty amazing um, competition that Merck sponsored where for the princely sum you'll notice of $40,000, Merck said to the internet as a whole, Hey, help us out with this one aspect of drug discovery. Which of these molecules is going to be really effective against our target and not have toxicity elsewhere in the body? 
really important thing to get right. They opened it up to, to the world, basically, and said, come on, every, we'll welcome all comers. Who can do a good job here? The winning team in this case, I would have expected the winning team would have some digital geeks on it, but would also have a couple um, biochemists, a couple MD, PhDs, a bunch of medical geeks as well. What actually happened, um, the team, whoops, the team that won this, can we go back one? The, the team that won this consisted of four or five completely digital geeks from the University of Toronto. None of them had any experience with medicine, with biology, with biochemistry. All they knew was how to bang on data really, really hard to find the patterns that we're interested in. So I go all up and down the skill ladder and I see this kind of digital encroachment happening uh, happening very quickly, and if my friends in Silicon Valley are right, we still underestimate how quickly a lot of this is coming. So what does this mean? One plausible future that I draw is, here's our friend the bull. What might this look like if we were to redraw it a few years or a decade or so into the future? I think it might look more like this, where that, that encroachment, that polarization deepens and, and goes farther in both directions. And we're left with people doing intensely physical work at one end, not very well paid work, intensely physical work. Robots are still not able to do everything. And then up at the absolute high end, we still have uh, you know, data scientists and user interface designers and people doing this incredibly refined skill up top. In the middle though, and this is an apocalyptic picture, I appreciate that, but there's this large space in the middle that could be getting further hollowed out by the kind of tech progress that we're seeing. So let me just quickly, uh, I'll draw one last graph that summarizes where our economy has been, and then let's throw this open. This is a graph that Eric and I call the great decoupling. And it's a graph of four lines that used to be all traveling together for several decades after the end of World War II. The, these four lines were all going up in lockstep. And the lines are output per person, productivity, job creation, and average wage. Is the average job a good job or not? All four of those were going up in lockstep for a while, and then you notice that there's been this decoupling, this divergence. And the first line that started to stall out was the median income line. The average worker stopped sharing in the gains as well. And then recently, that red line is the, just the raw job growth line. It too has been petering out a little bit. So. We're seeing pretty clearly this decoupling going on. The question is, what's the future going to look like? And my conclusion is, um, if we don't figure out some interventions, the most likely scenario to me is a, is a continuation of these kinds of trends. I've invented the world's dorkiest dance move when I talk about this phenomenon, because I keep on going like this. Because a lot of the pictures, a lot of the data that we've shown has this kind of pattern to it, just a, a decoupling or a divergence of one kind or other. My baseline assumption is that unless we figure out some interventions, that kind of divergence is going to continue, and it feels to me like it's going to accelerate. However, we need to be really, really careful about making any kind of confident statement about the future full stop and especially the future of technological progress and what it's doing to the economy. It's very easy to get lulled into believing one thing. Uh, history shows that's a pretty bad idea. And we have a really, I believe, we have a deeply unpredictable cocktail going on these days of innovation, entrepreneurship, and progress, and globalizations, and so who knows where all this is going to go. But as I say, my most plausible path is the future is going to look kind of like what we've already seen, but more of it. Um, let me stop there. I would love to hear
questions, comments, reactions for a bit of time. We have a microphone, so if you could please gesticulate wildly and we'll run a mic over to you. We have our first wild gesticulator. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Are we, wait, no, it's coming close. Three, two, go. Um, hi, my name is Eric. Thanks so much for this presentation. It's, it's terrific. I'm Could really we all start our comments that way? <laughs> we, I got up kind of early for this, so that's gratifying. So I, I actually, I work in education, so I'm, I'm fascinated by both the, the slide you showed about how you know, more college degree, graduate degree, you see income going up, but obviously um, the way technology is, as you talked about, deepening out the middle jobs, you know, how do we... How do, how do we use technology in the education space to actually level that playing field? Yeah. Because we're seeing with adaptive learning, with tremendous education that actually, and it's not kicking teachers out, it's actually giving them space to do one-on-one -on -one learning so that students can get things like two standard deviations of growth. So talk a little bit about how you see, um, how you see robotics, AI, technology revolutionizing education um, and how that might be able to secure some of the, that gap that you described yeah. in the tunable. I, and I think you've done a really nice job of summarizing it. If we do, if we make good changes and smart changes to our educational policies and our educational systems, and if we use technology properly, I think technology has to be a huge component of it because we have such amazing tools now. If we get that right, we stand a chance to mitigate some of the, some of the dire or some of the challenges that I've talked about here. I think what we're seeing so far, though, is that technology for education, it's, it's not yet a rising tide that's lifting all of our boats and helping the average student out. Instead, to me, it's more of a diamond detector. If there's a kid out there who's got the tenacity and got the smarts, there are these unbelievable resources, everything from Khan Academy to Coursera and Udacity, and that kid can upskill herself in ways that were never, ever possible before. We're seeing that happen, but I would love for technology and education to be that rising tide that's lifting everybody. That, that's going to be a lot harder work than just doing the diamond detecting that we're doing right now. Uh, can we go over here, please? I'm not sure I understand this right, but the machines are only as smart as the people who wrote the algorithms. So could you sort of give us an idea of what a geek is made of? Yeah. Um, the, the, the deeply weird development is that I don't think your opening statement is true anymore. Uh, we, the new toolkit of, of, um, of algorithms out there is in many ways smarter than the geeks that program them. The, and I, this is a massive oversimplification of a deep, deep trend in computer science and artificial intelligence. But what the, what the best geeks are able to do now is configure a system and notice I did not use the word program it, because program it means, in my world, teach it all the rules of the, of the environment you want it to get good at. Teach it about oncology or pathology. What the geeks are doing instead is configuring a system and then saying, okay, I'm going to train you for a while. I'm going to show you blah thousands of images of breast cancer tissue. And I'm going to tell you which of them resulted in a, in a fatality, in a mortality, the severity of the disease, stuff like that. You're going to train yourself system by looking at lots of these images. I'm not going to tell you what's important. I'm just going to configure you so you can figure it out. 
And then after that, I'm going to show you a bunch more images where I don't tell you what the answer is, and you're going to give me your best guess. The best guesses are remarkably good guesses in that sense. A follow-on question is very often, does that mean the machines are smarter than us? That's an entirely long, separate discussion. The short answer, no. So we don't need to worry about the Terminator matrix kind of future. I, I have a lot more immediate concerns about the average worker. Uh, they're not going to be enslaved or wiped out. I just want them to have a job, right? Uh, can we go in the middle here? The economic implications of what you're saying are horrendous. The only I'd use the word big. <laughs> And in some cases, challenging. Yeah. Okay. Uh, can you tell us any any centers or authors who are addressing the question? I know of one, Jared Lenier, who has written a book on exactly this subject. Yeah. He doesn't come up with very good answers, but it's a, it's an attempt. Yeah. So what do we do about this phenomenon? If if you believe any portion of the story that I've tried to lay out here. What do we do about it? And as you say, there are a few authors who are tackling this and trying to address this really fundamental question, how do we, how do we bring back more economic opportunity to that classic middle class worker? It is, I believe it is the central question for today and especially tomorrow. Unfortunately, a lot of what I'm reading makes no sense to me at all. So I read, I, I've read Jaron's stuff, I debated him on TV. We need to be clear, uh, this is a book I strongly encourage you not to read, because I, I just think it's a deeply, deeply bad idea. What, what he wants to do is make it, and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to try hard not to do injustice to his argument. He wants to make it illegal for us to give stuff away to each other for free over the internet, and, ex and instead meter all of it, and then redistribute that metered stuff to the classic middle class. He thinks this is, is going to be A, enough money to go around, and B, will not have any dampening effect on the internet. This is lunacy. This makes no sense, right? Oh, I was debating him on TV, and, and I, I was trying to crystallize the question. And I said, Jaron, do you want to make it illegal for my brother to upload pictures of his daughters for free on Facebook, or make it illegal for me to look at pictures of my nieces? And he said, both. All right, we're done. That's, that's just a ridiculous way to go. So what do we do to, redu to, reduce, to restore that, that opportunity? We spend the last third of our book talking about it. Uh, in the short term, if we just got our basic Econ 101 policy toolkit right, if we fixed our infrastructure, if we made life easier for entrepreneurs, if we reformed our educational system, if we had a rational immigration system, things would get so much better very, very quickly. Now, you know, ha, 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 that's going to happen in today's Washington. But we don't need crazy solutions right now. We need Econ 101. So we try to lay that out in the book. Uh, can we go way over here? I'm sorry, I'm making you run a lot, but we have a big room. Thank you. My name is Arel Shalitz. I think you gave an absolutely fascinating talk. Uh, I would like to uh, know, when do you think that you will be replaced on stage by a computer? <laughs> and do you think there would be any negative effects of that? That would be massively bad news. I, I, can't, I can't think of a worse outcome than that. So you ask a really interesting question. I was at the TED conference earlier this year in Vancouver, and they announced a TED a new grand challenge for TED. The grand challenge is the first completely automated system 
that can get a standing ovation from the TED audience. That's the, that's the, the, the yardstick of how, whether or not you killed your TED talk. Did the audience leap to its feet? Um, when I gave my TED talk, the audience did not leap to its feet. But when, if and when a completely automated a piece of AI can get a standing ovation at TED, they're going to have, a, that will be the winner of that challenge. And there's prize money associated with that. Um, I'm not holding my breath on that. I think this kind of thing is still one of the areas where people have a comparative advantage. But the mantra that I learned when, I, when we were doing the research and writing the book, the mantra that I learned about tech progress is never say never. Let's come way up front. Right here. Awesome. Presentation. I just want to start with that. Thank you. <laughs> so recently, uh, it, I think it was in the New York Times that Google, 40% of the hires don't have a college education. Um, so that's part one of it. It's actually 14, but that's still pretty amazing. My number's off. Yeah. Thank you. It wasn't a whole order of magnitude, so don't feel but bad. But it is interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. The, the it's, no, it's fascinating for, because in some of the most technical parts of Google, the teams of really serious geeks, up to 14% of the people do not have a college degree. What? Uh, so just if I could riff on that a little yeah. bit, Google realized a lot of the signals they were relying on for the quality of their human capital, people that they wanted to hire, had no predictive value whatsoever about how good a job people actually did in their careers. Uh, the brain teaser questions Google used to ask were worthless. They served to make the interviewer feel smart. For anyone beyond a year or two out of school, your transcript, your GPA, your, your, your educational CV meant nothing anymore. So they've had to rely on very different methods to assess who are the best and the brightest. And very often, they're people who don't even have a college degree. To the point made earlier, these, these kids are getting their smarts online. I'm, go ahead. Okay, so the follow-up is because the geek world tends to look for geeky solutions for hiring, <laughs> have you heard of anybody using um, the computer or technology for selection? Going out, finding it out there in the... Yes, I haven't heard of completely automated, like, hire this person kind of a thing, and then no human in the loop. But the, the cutting edge of human resources, as I look at it, and human capital management, is a lot geekier than it was five or ten years ago. There are a lot more algorithms at work, which I think is great news. Right? The, the more you learn about our classic human capital practices, the more they're, they're just worthless. Yep, can we go, is there a hand up here? Yeah. Thank you. And reflecting upon the tuna can analogy, <clears throat> I was thinking about some areas which would be unlikely for the high end. Good. And I was curious as to How were you doing? <laughs> well, but my curious, I'm curious as to whether uh, in the field of counseling therapy, yeah. uh, whether computers are now engaged in that, whether in fact they could be more patient, more predictive, and, and just if you could take us in that direction. And, and in, some, in some limited cases they are. One of the really heartening things that I've seen, it turns out that deeply autistic children can interact with computers in many ways more naturally than they interact with human beings. And not for all cases, but sometimes the iPad has become a vehicle of communication between these kids and their parents. It's 
not a dry eye on the house when you watch this happen. In addition, we're using technology, which has infinite patience, to teach some of these kids what are the rules of human engagement because their brains just don't have them hardwired in. So we're getting better at, at some of that. In general, I think you're exactly right. I still have not seen what I would call a deeply empathetic or compassionate piece of technology. They can fake it in some pretty convincing ways. But, but I, you know, I still think if I were ever having real trouble, I would not want to talk to an algorithm. Not yet, not yet, right? <laughs> uh, can we go over here? Yeah. Wait for the mic, please. Is there a Stanford of political science that can help us deal with the political ramifications of everything you're talking about? We see it playing out in, in our elections with our president, and we don't seem to have any answers. Um, I, I wish I could give you a really upbeat answer to that question. The, the gridlock, I think, that we see these days in the political system is as dismaying to me as it is to a lot of other people. The, the, the little green shoots, the rays of hope I can give, are since the book came out, we've had a lot of, of, of conversations on both sides of the aisle, both from the right and the left. And lots of parties in Washington are, are increasingly aware of and interested in these trends. I wish there were more consensus about what to do about it. I, I've spent some time with the advocacy group Forward.us trying to help push along immigration reform because when I go talk to my friends in the Valley, they, they say, was this designed by Kafka? This makes no sense. We've got the world's brightest and most talented people beating down the doors to come to America to do their careers and build their lives, and the, the barriers we put in front of them are, are just ludicrously bad. So again, it, I, what, I, I'm, just, I, I'm trying to evangelize this idea of an Econ 101 toolkit because we don't need magic weird policy interventions. If we get the basics right, many, many things will get better. I, I wish I saw more evidence of convergence instead of polarization in our political system, though. Uh, right next to you, please. Thank you very much. Fascinating. We educate human beings to follow ethical rules. Now, technology does substitute for human beings. What's the relationship between technological progress and ethics? Uh, that's a great question. It's very far from my area of expertise. So all I can say with, with any conviction on that is recently the companies that are pushing artificial intelligence the hardest have started to set up ethics boards and started to ponder exactly these kinds of questions. What flavor of hot water might we get in if we continue down this path? And what do we want to do about that? How, do we, how can we possibly put barriers in place or put checks and balances so that our systems don't get too far ahead or too far away from our, our sense of ethics. Um, I haven't seen things that make me terribly, terribly nervous yet, but again, you know, let's never say never. For example, we st I, I believe the military will still not allow a drone to make the final decision about firing. Thank heaven, let's, let's keep that the way it is for, for a long time to come. Uh, way in the back again. Thank you, Professor. Um, Professor, could you address some of the arguments made by those like Robert Gordon at Northwestern and Peter Thiel and others who argue that outside of the world of information technology, yeah. we've seen progress um, slow in yeah. a lot of different areas? 
Yeah, so you summarize very nicely. There are some really smart, prominent people who look at our basic argument and say, no, you guys are way too enamored of digital progress. Yeah, it's cool, but it's in a fairly small box in the economy, in, the, in Silicon Valley, in a couple different sectors. And when you look outside that box, you get underwhelmed by the kind of progress that we're seeing. Um, to which I say, no, that, that's, I just, I, that argument is not correct as I look at it. Information technology is one of these things that economists call a general purpose technology. And what that means is they don't stay confined to a little box they go everywhere. So I've given examples about transportation. I've given examples about medicine. I've given examples about knowledge work. Th these are not confined to any tiny little box. Uh, we're seeing progress in solar technologies that some of the people I talk to say, give it a few more years, will be cost competitive with the grid. Uh, a lot of people think that the progress that we're seeing in, with genetics blows everything else away. The human genome was sequenced 11 years ago for the first time at a cost of about $3 billion. Any of us can get our genome completely sequenced right now for about $3,000. That makes Moore's Law look like child's play. So this idea of, of underwhelming progress, I, I, I'm just not looking at the same economy they're looking at. We've debated both Peter and Robert. They're great guys. If you're interested, uh, if, if we haven't completely bored you to tears with this session, go look up those debates. I, I find them really edifying because they're smart guys to talk to. All right, we have, time for, we have time for two more questions. The ground rules are they have to be short and they have to be fantastic. <laughs> if you believe you have got a short, fantastic question, Keep your hand in the air. Wow, we have a brave volunteer right here. Well, maybe a short, fantastic comment. This, this may go along with the 14% of Google hires, but um, I would advise everyone to take a look at Ed Wilson's Social Conquest of Earth. And one of my favorite comments in that book that he makes is that it is not the most brilliant human superstars that have pushed civilization forward. Uh, Ed is bravely says that he struggled along very nicely with the Crawford Prize and two Pulitzer Prizes with an IQ of 120. We estimate that Charles Darwin struggled along with 130. So what he's saying is that the super brilliant become easily bored. Uh, they don't maybe don't do well in school. They're bored. They end up becoming people with IQs of 160 or 180. Join Mensa and then become CPAs. So that the people that really have pushed civilization forward are the ones down in the trenches, people like Ed Wilson, that are pattern matchers and synthesizers. And, and I don't know, I just think that, that fascinates me. I, I'm an evolutionary ecologist, so um, neat stuff, I think. Agreed. All right, final, who's bringing us home? Who feels really good about their chances? <laughs> don't let us down, please, ma'am. <laughs> Do I look like I would let you down? <laughs> So your tuna bowl, your tuna can, yeah. leaves a lot of people behind. Yep. And when you start to think about um, the number of people graduating from high school in this country, education disparities, income disparities, where does technology try to fix this? It tries to fix it back to our earlier interaction about using technology as part of a bigger solution of educational reform. I don't pretend there's a technological silver bullet for the many problems we have in our educational system. That would be a very silly thing to say. It's a great tool if we've got, if we've got the right recipe and the formula and the will to try to fix what's going on. I think tech is absolutely a part of it. Um, but let me, let me end on that note, because if we are headed into more of a tuna can, we need to think longer and deeper about what we're going to do 
for the people that, that are getting increasingly left behind as technology races ahead. My personal sense of, of morals and ethics is that it's wrong to leave them behind just because they don't have the skills that a very, very technologically sophisticated economy requires. That, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. We've got time to figure out what the right solutions are, but we shouldn't wait too much longer.